This is Daniel Figella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, and you're listening to the AI in Business Podcast. This is episode two of our five-part series on AI culture change in the enterprise. Every day this week, Monday through Friday, we are publishing a fresh episode on AI culture change, and we've got some excellent guests lined up. Today is a leader from Facebook. Carlos Escapa is today's guest. He was previously the global AI and ML practice leader for Amazon Web Services, and he is now the global business development manager for Facebook AI. In our previous episode, if you didn't listen to it, by the way, please do tune into that episode. Our our episode on culture change was our first, our kickoff episode was with the global head of AI at IBM, Seth Dobrin. And Seth brought to bear a lot of experience from within IBM and their own transformation and many of the big legacy enterprises that they work with. Carlos certainly engages with legacy enterprises, but also has more of a perspective of the hyperscalers. He is, after all, within Facebook and previously spent time as global practice leader for AI and ML at Amazon. And with PyTorch, which is the primary platform that he is the business development manager for, he works with a lot of cutting-edge startups who are actively deploying AI and who have AI in their DNA. So Carlos is bringing to bear a perspective from the opposite pole. While IBM might work with a legacy oil and gas company or a legacy brick and mortar retailer, Carlos has seen companies that are born with AI in their DNA. And so this is going to be a bit more of a perspective of what enterprises can model from companies who are genuinely at the bleeding edge when it comes to AI culture. When it comes to making collaboration and data value a norm, what do the best companies do at that? What are the companies who are great at it and do it from day one doing? When What can we model and learn from that? That is indeed the focus of today's episode. So we're grateful to be able to have Carlos with us on the program. I thought this was a tremendously insightful episode. If some of you are tuned in and you are just getting started on your own AI journey, or maybe you're working with clients who are getting started on their AI journey, be sure to download our free PDF brief, which is called Beginning with AI, Three Key Insights for Non-Technical Professionals. If you're not the person who writes the code, but you do want to make AI adoption faster from a culture perspective and otherwise, then again, you can check out our Beginning with AI guide. You can go to emerj.com slash B-E-G-1. That's emerj.com slash B-E-G, like beginning, and then the number one, emerj.com slash B-E-G-1, and download that free PDF brief, which hopefully will give you some additional insight in addition to what you pick up in today's episode. Without further ado, this is Carlos Escapa with Facebook AI here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Carlos, I'm really glad we're able to catch up. It was a year back when we first connected, followed you on LinkedIn since then, and we're speaking today in this series about AI culture. You are in a unique position to work with some of the most innovative companies, no exaggeration, in the field of artificial intelligence. And I wanted to start things off by just getting your take on what the best AI companies are doing culturally that is allowing them to turn AI into value. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey. Glad to have you. I would say that companies that are adopting AI are companies that have embraced the culture of experimentation, accepting the fact that when you start a project, you're actually treating projects as an endeavor, a discovery effort. And that are able to also learn very quickly. Um, when things don't work well, they basically pivot forward to a new idea or a new concept. And those are the companies that tend to do very well with AI. Because AI lends itself very naturally to discovering new insights or new 
ways of driving value from data and creating new products or services or enhancing existing processes in ways that traditional methods, uh, such as divide and conquer, do not address. And when you mentioned divide and conquer, I imagine the folks in the enterprise are going to have some degree of an idea of sort of where you're headed there. How would you describe that as a mentality? Yeah, divide and conquer has been the traditional method of developing IT for the last 50 years. So you take a very big uh, problem, you break it into pieces, you find out if you have off-the-shelf components, and then you assemble the pieces together in an application and you deliver that. The approach that we are taking now with AI and data science is that you actually start from data collected empirically, and then you find out if you have some correlations in the data that allow you to drive conclusions. Yeah. So by you know the, the descriptions we've heard on the show in the past have been that AI is much more like R&D than it is like IT. And I think, unfortunately, in the enterprise, that still isn't understood thoroughly enough. People are expecting to, well, can we just plug it in and can we just get some value out of it? But of course, it is very different. So you're talking about this culture of, of experimentation. You used off microphone a little bit ago also the, the term not just of experimentation, but of discovery. What does discovery mean, I guess, literally? And then also, from a cultural standpoint, what do you see companies do to discover well and, and, and again, turn AI into value? Yeah, when the data scientists uh, dive into the data and, and they become almost as one with the data, they will find, they will make unexpected findings in, in the data. This could be things to do with um, behavioral aspects of their users, uh, or it could be just environmental aspects that uh, were not known or were not even suspected. That, that happens. Uh, the story of Amazon, for instance, is quite significant. They found uh, early on when they started to apply machine learning to the purchasing data that they had from customers that uh, customers were very repetitive. And even many purchases were completely things that you could predict. Yeah. They didn't expect the customers to be so predictable. You know, the idea that we have that customers are very fickle, that fashions change and so on. But many, many things that we do as humans are completely repetitive. And this was a big insight for Amazon early on. And it's something evidently that they capitalized on. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, you're saying that culturally, not just being able to experiment to reach goal X, but be willing to discover to be able to then propose ideas from the bottom up when we, uh, I, I like your term, very, very Jedi-like or something, becoming one with the data. So when we become one with the data and we can unearth insights, it might be, okay, we're, we're iterating and experimenting towards the goal that we wanted, reducing fraud, payment fraud, let's say, or improving the cart value of our e-commerce website or whatever the case may be. But we may also run into some interesting correlations between product use that might help us with upsell, cross-sell, or that might help us develop a new product feature because it sure seems obvious that based on the way users are interacting, there might be a way to leverage this to suggest something to help them with their goals and improve our retention in some way. So you're saying that, yeah, companies that are, I, I like this, companies that are getting culture right are not just doing experimentation, they're also actively doing discovery. That's right. They also listen to their employees because when an, an, an employee that finds a, an insight in the data or that is able to build a model that explains some unexpected behavior in a product or a, or a service needs to have a voice inside of the company. And that voice needs to reach uh, people who manage resources, normally up in management, and who can do something about it. 
So that channel of communication and this ability to propose new ideas, to share the discoveries and very quickly be able to move on them is a key characteristics of, of companies that do AI correctly, that Got do it. AI very well. And and we're going to get into sort of what it looks like to put this culture in action, but I know that teams is such a big part of culture done well. Again, you're getting to work with a lot of innovative firms, uh, potentially a lot of legacy firms as well. There's definitely a different understanding of the cross-functional teams. And off mic, again, you had mentioned that you were sort of beginning to see AI and talk about AI as a cross-disciplinary field as opposed to sort of some mathematical field. What are some of your key insights culturally about, again, companies that are really putting AI to proper use? How are they doing teams differently? You know, there, there clearly is this difference between divide and conquer and then this iterative approach with AI. So that, that that's a mindset on one side. But in terms of how experts interact and different folks interact, what do you see as the key distinctions there? Each sector is going to have a different approach to multidisciplinary teams. And a lot of the effect that AI models may have in a business is going to determine the, the size and the quality of, of the experts. Also regulations. For instance, in telecommunications, when you find that the help desk automation trend is very strong at the moment using natural language processing models, there are people with titles that I wouldn't expect in the past, like data ethicist. This is actually a function that is not really technical, but it is somebody who understands uh, the different data that are collected in a, in a company and decides whether they're fit for purpose, whether it is ethical or moral to include those data in the training runs that yeah, are being yeah, done yeah. Okay. For, for the models. There may be people also that have to ideate how that model could be used in a different context for an unintended purpose. So there are people now that are documenting the intended use of the model, the sources of data for the model. And this is actually part of the metadata available that guides the future use and the retraining aspects of, of the models. I, this is really curious. I, I want to pause on this because I just haven't heard it in the past. So the idea of AI ethics and sort of this emerging field, we've covered from many different angles and have have stayed closely in touch with, you know, the IBMs and the IEEEs of the world and, and other folks that are sort of aiming to develop frameworks in this in this space. The idea of are we going to train this model on this data versus this data? Is this going to violate GDPR? Is there a chance that this is tracking with something like race or gender that we just think is a PR nightmare? Or maybe it's just violating our own values. We don't want to do that. That that element of AI ethics, I think I'm familiar with. Many of our audience members will be. You mentioned that there's folks ideating how could this model be used for maybe nefarious or alternative purposes. That is a level of advanced sort of forward thinking around AI risk and ethics that for me, is quite uncommon. The vast majority of companies are obviously not doing that. You're working with many firms that are extremely cutting edge. What does that look like? I mean, it feels like this, tell me if I'm wrong, but this must be rather sophisticated organizations to be thinking at that level. Or they're highly regulated. Okay, one or the other. Okay, good yes. to know. All right. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, you, yeah go, you ahead, go ahead. Yeah, you definitely see that in healthcare. You do see it in telco, uh, as, as I mentioned, and, and there's many other sectors where, where there is a regulation. The data are collected for a specific purpose. And when when you have that guidance or, or, or requirement, and that also means that downstream, you cannot just do with that data anything you like. It has to be within a given domain 
that that is being applied. So being that data being rerouted for other applications would constitute a violation of uh, the intended use. Huh. Okay. Got it. Got it. So there are people whose job, and I don't know, does this fall under AI ethicist or is this some sort of a, you know, a that would white, be more compliance. What? Okay. Yeah, that compliance. would be more in the, this part, part of the, of the compliance. Um, yeah. I was speaking with a user of, of Python just a few weeks ago that actually has two separate roles. There's somebody that is examining whether the data sources are the right ones in order to develop the models. And then there's somebody outside of that in the compliance side that is examining compliance aspects. And these are two different roles in this multidisciplinary team that they put together. Hmm. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, curious, because not your average compliance person doesn't have the context to be even, you know, not only do they not write Python, but I don't, I, I don't know if this person needs to be technical, but they wouldn't have the context to know, oh, if we train this in a slightly different way, this could be used in some nefarious sense. So this is a new kind of role emerging. And, and I imagine we'll see a lot more of this. You are heading off and, and taking us in a direction of how the right kind of culture brings different kinds of experts together. You were just starting to get into how now AI ethics and the, these new kinds of roles are emerging. Continue your, your path on sort of how those connections occur, because we know that experimentation is very different than command and conquer or this kind of waterfall type old school IT. But how are the right companies pulling in all these roles, including these new ones that you're addressing? Exactly. What you just said is actually, I would say vice versa. Go ahead. Way, with, Go ahead. With regard to what you were saying about the, the compliance or, or, the, or the data experts, it's very clear that in the last five years, it, it has been the ML modeler. That role inside of the company has been the key person in the development and deployment of AI applications. And that person tends to be very mathematical and somebody who can manipulate large amounts of data, build data pipelines, and then find some sort of a function by leveraging machine learning frameworks, a a function that explains the data. That person may well be very far removed from compliance requirements, may be unaware of ethical, it could be ethical requirements, it could be even completely unaware of what is the final and intended use of the model. So I've also seen some organizations that are uh, beginning to adopt this cultural aspect where the modelers are actually suppliers to the application owners. So the application owners... They're maybe working on a given business problem or there's something that they want to improve or attack. And then they will go to the ML team and ask whether they can produce a model and a specific kind of inference with a specific requirement. And there could be specs around it. It could be with regard to the kind of data that can be used. It could be with the kind of uh, response time that is required, precision and so on. And then find out if then the ML team goes out and finds out if there are data available to satisfy the requirements of the application owner. But there is a clear distinction between the two roles and the application owner keeps the responsibility over the correct use of those inferences inside of the AI application. Huh, yeah. Well, this is a really, when we think about things that are emerging, how AI expertise gets brought into an enterprise, especially a legacy enterprise is a very new thing. As you're mentioning, sort of some 
organizations have this kind of central function. Some have more nodes embedded in all the different departments. And so the way that collaboration ends up bubbling up inside of, let's say, an Airbnb versus a, a LinkedIn even, like the the AI cultures and the way that they operate is is unique. And I think no norms have re- – the dust hasn't really settled on the norms there, but you're bringing up one way that you've seen this happen. It seems to me like what you just brought up, and I'm sure you are addressing it in this way – kind of a dangerous or non-ideal circumstance when the person in the dark corner with extreme mathematical experience is tasked with the compliance task when that's not their job is to to focus all day on compliance. They're, they're a little bit disconnected from it. This brings to bear the importance of cross-functional teams. The the general idea of, well, people need to work together more is is not quite actionable enough. You know, when you when you think about culture done well and when and how different types of expertise engage, is there a way that you like to frame it? Is there something that you see that really distinguishes high performers? I don't think that I have a magic. Uh, well, there's no <laughs> magic. It's, it's per- perspective. For, per- perspective. For uh, would what be I could definitely say is that there are many problems in life that can be solved uh, through correlations. In other words, we don't really need to understand the cause and effect. And, and advertising is, is one of those, right? If you find out that people click on an ad that is colored red or framed in blue or whatever, you don't really need to go and understand what's going on in the brain. You just no, basically no. say, oh, the correlation is good enough. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, the same cannot be done with a molecule that you come up with in order to fight uh, a given cancer, yeah, or, or a given sickness. The correlation gets you started. You can actually use the correlation is very useful but you still need a subject matter expert to understand what that correlation means and what consequences it could have big time there, yeah th- therefore the, the the application of machine learning really is completely dependent on the the use case and specifically would i think it is very helpful if business leaders are able to determine very quickly whether a correlation is good enough to fix a problem or whether there is a need to analyze the causation. Yeah, okay. Uh, and then the, the requirements around correlation are relatively straightforward. That they are, they're, well, if not straightforward, at least they are easier yeah. to, to, to deal with, and you can be significantly faster in the application. But in, in those areas where you're actually touching humans' uh, lives, if you will, sure, sure. Or, you, or there's a potential to cause harm, whether, whether physical or mental, that's where you need another team to determine whether the correlations are usable and how. This is interesting. And I feel like a lot of people probably, I could probably write an entire article on this going back through past interviews with the the really cutting edge Silicon Valley firms uh, compared to the, the legacy firms. But this idea that if you're focusing mostly on correlation oriented problems where we don't need to understand the base reality and or the consequences aren't that grandiose. If Amazon recommends red rain boots to me tomorrow, I'm probably not going to stop using Amazon, but if I take the wrong medicine or my money gets invested the wrong way, now we're talking about serious consequences. So if we're dealing with most of these kind of correlation in the way that you're framing it sort of level of problems, it makes sense that we can just move so much faster and, and maybe not even need as much subject matter expertise because it almost becomes a math problem. It's a matching and a math problem. People kind of famously talk about Facebook and Google in this sense. Through the bubbling broth of, of a bajillion behaviors, you know, what do people click on? What do people want to engage with? And, and that is literally good enough to determine uh, usership on some level. What you're saying is the more we're also focusing on those consequences in the world, 
the more we're going to need those other experts that are grounded in that space to be part of the conversation. The way we think about it, Carlos, so again, I know you don't have a magic formula. Neither do I. My job is to talk to as many people as possible and try to connect the dots. One way that we've connected the dots in, in terms of thinking about this is that often when we're framing the problem and determining the measurements of success and also determining kind of what the outputs are going to be for the end user, whether it's a customer or internal, generally in the room, uh, physically or metaphorically, we want to have our data science experts who have an understanding of the base data that we might even be working with so they can tell us if we have dumb ideas that we don't even have data to support. We're going to want subject matter experts that understand the problem, maybe understand the end user better than the guy writing Python, and probably going to want the business owner here or somebody somebody kind of in a head of or, or connected to, to, to leadership who understands budgets, who understands what mandates we're actually able to unleash resources to, because an R&D project is not a trivial thing. So we need to have buy-in and understanding from whoever's buying it, because if we promise it's going to be plug and play, yeah, boss, we're just going to make the recommendation engine work. Cool. Okay. You know, that's that's not the level of understanding that person needs. That person needs to know how much iteration is going to happen. That often business leadership, subject matter experts, and data scientists need to frame these problems and determine these outputs ahead of time in order for, for things to work well. Any caveats you'd want to throw on top of that? I think it's meshing with a lot of what you're saying, but I want to see if, if maybe there's richness that you want to chip in. Sure. Legacy companies tend to be much more focused on planning than on experimentation. True. Therefore, the ability of an organization to adopt AI, surely, is related to the ability of senior management to embrace failure. The two are directly connected. So this is what I would call, you know, for your American uh, <laughs> followers, is the, the Babe Ruth effect. Go ahead. I don't know much about baseball, but I understand that Babe Ruth had both uh, a record in uh, uh, home runs and strikeouts. Yes, 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 yes. And, and this, this is the thing. This is the same, same issue. If you, if you look at a given country or a region that is very, very successful in business, they also tend to have a record number of bankruptcies hmm. because people try more. They try more ideas, and if they fail, they fail. They basically learn from it and move on. And this is where legacy companies, I think, have potentially the biggest difficulty in, in adopting AI. It is, it is the fact that at the senior management level, they have to understand that too much planning actually slows them down and, in fact, discourages the Failure, discovery yeah. and experimentation that is required in order to adopt uh, AI. And it's kind of funny how you would actually expect more failures or if there's not enough failure inside of a company, perhaps they're not trying hard enough or they're not experimenting hard enough. And this is this is something that is perhaps a very counterintuitive, particularly when have, you have people that who went through MBAs in the 20th century who are running companies today and you actually tell them that, hey, pull back on the planning and push more on experimenting. And by the way, do have a good motivational approach to those people who try new experiments yeah, and yeah. fail and reward them for the, what they learn. This is, I believe, one of the biggest obstacles, which is not really technology or talent related. not not even close not even close i mean as far as we can tell you know the hardcore ai talent is 
you know, it's a part of the puzzle of AI maturity and, and what adoption looks like. This culture element that you're talking about is huge. So any final notes, you know, uh, we've, we've aired out some really important points around experimentation and discovery. I like the distinction with discovery. I think I'm going to be bringing that up more often because it's, it's an even further extension into being willing to not just experiment, but find something new and then propose it, right? Create more potential loops for failures and successes, more Babe Ruth opportunities. And also the idea of, of collaboration being critical. You know, there's legacy leaders who are tuned in working at a company like a, a CVS or a Shell Gas or whatever, who are asking themselves, what can I do to move the cultural needle? You're bringing up a great point, which is let's make sure senior leadership can embrace and even be willing to kind of smile at good ardent attempts to experiment and potentially fail and that that is part of the cultural mix. Anything else that, that you would say is really important takeaway advice? for leadership, senior leadership in the enterprise who wants to make this culture change happen? Yeah, the iteration, constant learning, having a lot of time dedicated to training is also an, an absolute requirement. And this is just in general. It's not only AI. Sure, sure. It's, it's in, in just about every field. Um, more of the trite and easy jobs that involve process, more and more of that is going to be automated. And if you extrapolate 20 years into the future, it is only natural that the jobs are going to get a lot more creative and it's going, we're going to do a lot more experimentation in companies further down the line, more and more and more, because the trivial elements are going to be more easily automated as we improve our AI tools. Therefore, that evolution is going to be normal and it is something that people should, should expect. People need to learn a lot more uh, on a week-to-week -week basis in order to continue to be productive. Big time. Well, uh, those of you who are longtime listeners and readers will be familiar with our concept of building AI fluency among leadership and subject matter experts. Uh, there's a whole, you mentioned uh, education here, Carlos, is a... There's a whole nother podcast just on how to get that right, but I do think that you're you're absolutely right to put a, a final stamp on that at the end of our episode to say, hey, if we're not learning and upgrading our skills to get into this new norm of iteration, which is where business is headed, we're not going to be putting ourselves into a good uh, place culturally. So I like that as a takeaway. Hopefully, for those of you tuned in, this has been helpful. Carlos, I sincerely appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat with you and get some of your wisdom today. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. So that wraps up our second episode of this five-part series on AI culture change in the enterprise. I am grateful to Carlos Escapa for joining us on this episode, just as I'm grateful for IBM's global head of AI for being our first episode. And I'm glad to have you as our listener tuned in and following along. We've worked hard to bring to bear the most powerful voices we could on the topic of AI culture change to make this week a useful one for you. Monday through Friday, we have an episode going out every day for those five days on the topic of AI culture change. And as you can tell from these first two interviewees, we are working hard to get big names on the show and to share insights that are going to be powerful for you, our listeners. So if you've benefited from what you've learned here, uh, or you appreciate the level of guests and the level of insight that we've brought to bear, it would mean the world if you'd consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. 
can simply go on iTunes, which is now called Apple Podcasts, and you can search for AI in Business. And when you do leave a review, not only are we pretty darn likely to put your uh, podcast review into the newsletter to share some insight from you, our listeners, with our other listeners and readers around the world, but also those bits of feedback are what help to drive us forward. When you've seen changes in the format of the show, it's really come directly from podcast listeners who've provided that feedback to us. So you help us improve with your reviews and feedback, and also you help other folks learn more about the program. We're working hard to come out with great insight for non-technical professionals like yourself who are looking to get the most value out of AI. And again, your review on iTunes would mean the universe. So consider it if you've benefited from what we're putting together here. But otherwise, I look forward to having you join us tomorrow as we continue this series on AI culture change. This time, we'll be interviewing a leader of AI inside of SAP, one of the largest and best-known enterprise software firms in the world. So be sure to stay tuned for that. I look forward to catching you tomorrow in the next episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.